Got your Bibles open to the book of James. If you would stand with me, we're going to pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word, and then I'm going to read from chapter 4. Let's pray together. Blessed God, we come now to the preaching of Your Word, and we pray for uh, light. We pray for understanding. Lord, we pray for softness. Lord, where we need correction, we pray that You would bring it to us. Where we need questions answered, Lord, answer them. Where we need guidance, Lord, give it. But in all things, Lord, as we hear your word preached, move in us to accept it, receive it, to love it. Lord, to seek application to it, that we would honor you by honoring your word. We pray, O God, that you would not only be in our midst, but that you would work in us to that most effectual will that you would change us, Lord, as your disciples conform us to the blessed word of truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beloved, I want to read one verse out of chapter 4, and that is verse 4. So listen to James. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, beloved, last week we, uh, from this chapter, I addressed what worldliness does. Worldliness perverts the, the inside of a Christian. Worldliness is those uh, lusts, those passions, those unbridled desires that are unbecoming of a Christian. They are the result of our fallenness and they rise up within us. They are desires that we nurture, that we cater to, and those desires end up having an outward expression. And that's what James says. James says these wars... These arguments come from these unbridled, unconstrained lust in us. That's what worldliness does. Worldliness perverts us from the inside out. It perverts us and it perverts our relationships. Both vertically, man to man, and Horizontally, or vertically and horizontally. Vertically, our relationship with God, and horizontally, our relationship with one another. Now, hearing that, we are to look at any area of our lives, these relationships we have, and we're to ask, why do I have an argument? Why is there always a battle? Why is there always something going on? What's going on inside of me? That's what the purpose of that is supposed to be, and so we're to look at those things. Now, this morning, we're going to focus on why those things are true. And we're going to answer the question, so what is worldliness? If, if worldliness does these things in us and has such a, a, a detrimental effect around us, why is that? And I'm going to show you three Truths this morning why worldliness is so detrimental. There are going to be three truths that I pick out and bring out of verse 4 that's going to show us, number one, or that's going to show us mainly what worldliness is. Now, why do we need to know what it is? It's a thing. Because we need to be able to identify it. We need to be able to see it and to recognize it. And we need to be able, we we need to know about it so that we can address it. So it is a thing. Worldliness is a thing. You know, that's something that you hear a lot of today when it's my, oh, there's there's, um, some new uh, uh, activity. And they go, you know, that's a thing now. That's something that's kind of put out there and so worldliness is a thing and we need to know what that thing is the first thing that i want to bring to your attention or at least the first truth that i want us to be made aware of that james brings out is this number one that worldliness is 
a separating and fracturing from reality. Worldliness is a separating and a fracturing from reality. You see this in the word that James uses to describe those Christians that are guilty of worldliness. Look at what he calls these worldly Christians. He says, you adulteresses. Now we need to spend some time thinking about adultery and what an adulterer is if we're going to understand what worldliness is. Again, it's this separating, this fracturing of a relationship in it. That's what adultery does. Adultery breaks relationships. It fractures them. It's a separation. We're going to talk in detail about that in a minute. But I want to bring to your attention another aspect of this that I think is important as we deal with this metaphor as James is not speaking of literal, physical adultery, but he is speaking of spiritual adultery. This reality that we're breaking away from as spiritual adulterers is the reality that God has established and set up in His creation order. You know, when God made everything, He made everything according to its kind and according to certain laws and principles and rules that would govern over nature and even man himself. But the moment that man decided to live according to another rule, What happened? He broke away from that reality that God had set up and established for him to exist and live in and thrive in and be blessed by. But he decided to go off and be his own God, to be his own standard of living and to provide for himself what he perceived to be his own happiness. Now there's a word that we use to describe these things that break away from reality, and that's that, uh, and sort of establish these fantasy realms. You know what it's called? Utopias. They're utopias. When man breaks away from God's order of things and seeks to establish his own order, he seeks to establish his own life, he is, in essence, building his own world. He's building his own reality. He's fabricating his own reality. He's defining for himself what truth is. If we need to change it to fit this reality, then we change it. You know what utopia actually means? No place. No place. The very word utopia means no place, it doesn't exist. That when Adam and Eve sought to break away from their Creator and God and to live according to their own passions and lust and desires, those things that they had determined and decided for themselves, guess what they created? No place. That place doesn't actually exist. The place where they can be happy apart from God doesn't exist. The place that they can thrive and be blessed and grow and thr- you know and prosper and become happy and raise a, a wonderful family doesn't exist apart from God, His presence and His blessing. Now, brothers and sisters, this is what technically happens when the Christian decides to become a spiritual adulterer and break away from their commitments to God and to live according to their own lusts and passions. They're creating for themselves their own reality. These things no longer bring me satisfaction and pleasure and delight. These are better. So you can see why I make the connection here that this worldliness is a separating and fracturing from reality. See, the fact is, just because a person creates or a group of people create their utopia, let me ask you this. Do you think it really exists? 
You know, just because the people sit down and write declarations of what makes them happy, does that really make them happy? You say, well, they look happy, but I'm asking, did they, is this really what makes them happy? See, we don't know what's going on inside their heart. You don't know what's going on. You don't know the, the angst and the frustrations. And how many times have we heard people give testimony after testimony when, you know, having the whole world by the tail, if you will, and giving testimony because I had everything you could imagine. I had everything money could buy. I had friends. I had businesses. I had, you know, cars, houses. I had all of the prestige, all of the glamour, all of this worldly glory. But on the inside, I was dead. We've heard that quite often. And it's something that we'll continue to hear. Why? Because there is this utopia that exists out there, that men think, men and women think that they can divorce themselves from God and still have all the things they want and bring them pleasure and redefine what that happiness is and still be okay. And guess what? It's not possible. James calls these Christians guilty of this fracturing and breaking this relationship. He calls it adultery. Now, there are three things about adultery that I want to bring to our attention this morning. So that we might think about these things in our relationship to God. Number one, consent. Consent. Those of us who are married gave consent to our marriage, to our spouse, that we would marry them and that we would love them all of their lives. We gave consent to it. Will you marry me? Yes, I will marry you. You young men and young women who are yet to give your consent, one day, hopefully by God's grace, you will give your consent to another woman or young man and you will say, yes, I will marry you. And what you're saying by that consent is that you're saying, I will be in accord with you. From this time forward, I will be in accord with you. I will yield. I will serve you. I will love you. I will be your friend. I will exercise my rights, powers, and claims all in light of this consent that I now give to you. Now, why is consent important? Consent is important, brothers and sisters, because that is something that we, out of, out of our own wills, give. Nobody makes us marry our spouse. You know, even in the Bible, I know there's a lot of misconceptions out there but even scripturally, the woman was never, or at least not with God's blessing, given in marriage without her consent. Now, the other nations around them at that time, yeah, they would trade women like property. But that was not the way the Lord had Israel act. The father was not to give his daughter away without her consent and his consent. Now, why is consent important here? Well, now there's a breaking and fracturing of the relationship. Looking at it spiritually, who forced you to become a Christian? Who forced you to believe in Christ? Who forced you to see yourself as a sinner? Who forced you to listen to the good news and to accept that Christ had taken to Himself your sins, that and taking to himself the judgment that you rightly deserve. Who forced you to give that consent over to Christ? I will believe and trust and rest in Christ alone. And I will join the body of believers. And we will gather together. And we will bless the name of God. And we will serve Him. And we will be discipled. We all, brothers and sisters, at one point in time, have given consent. A spiritual adultery is a breaking of that consent. It's not an honoring of that consent. It's a going our own way. It's a fulfilling of our own passions and desires. It's a fracturing and separating from reality. Number two, vows and promises. Vows and promises. Now, it's not popular anymore, but Reformed churches still do this, and I hope 
that you know we will always do this, but to join a church, you exercise vows. You take vows. You make promises. Who do you make these promises to? To God. You make these promises to God. But you also make a promise to your brothers and sisters that you will fulfill these vows. That you won't walk away from them. That you will take them seriously. That you will, that you will strive and endeavor to bring even all of yourself, that's the strengths and the weaknesses that we all possess and have into conformity to the keeping of these vows and promises, to all growing grace, to, to be all that we are created to be in Christ Jesus. As one definition talks about, it says a solemn promise is those vows of unchangeable love and fidelity. We vow to love and serve God. When does that change? Well, it does change when we begin to love other things that God doesn't love or He forbids. And we cannot be guilty of loving other things that God hates without consequences. The definition goes on. It says, in a moral and a religious sense, vows are promises to God. They appeal to God to witness our sincerity in making them and keeping them and to consider it a heinous offense when we don't. You make a solemn vow to God even when we do not think those vows no longer matter. Guess who does? God does. God does. Now granted, we live in a day and time when words don't mean much. Relativism does in many ways rule our society, right? It's only true in the moment. It can be true today, not true tomorrow. It's, it's pliable, it's relative, it's, it, it's situational in the sense that I can make, you know, I can say one thing completely, I can say one thing today, I can say another thing tomorrow that will completely contradict what I say today and it be okay. But see, none of that's pleasing in God's sight. And Christians should not live that way. We should not live that way. So we have consent, we have vows, and then we have faithfulness. There's there's something more to the promises. You can make a promise. You can say something and never carry it out. That is, if I say I love God, but I never in any way carry out the duties that express that love, what does it mean? If, if a husband and wife... See, that's why I think it's so important that James used the term adulterer. Because he is highlighting the, the marriage covenant. He is making a relationship. He is helping us understand how our relationship to God is seen by God by using something very tangible in our own lives. We make promises to one another in our marriages. And there come seasons and times when those promises are very hard to maintain. And yet what's faithful, what's the faithfulness Part of that is that we continue on, that we work through those things, that we exercise this, this action. That is, I'm not just saying these words with my mouth, but I'm going to do something to support the things that I've said with my mouth. And I know at times that haven't been consistent, but I'm going to continue to do it. And I'm going to do it even in and through these weaknesses that I possess. Because discouragement can be a real thing. Whenever you see a lawless society, whenever you see a society that is so bent on destroying itself, and you see all of these, the, the, when you kind of see the the um, uh, the the, uh, the 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 those things, those moral bindings, when you see those things let loose and you see people just saying whatever they want to say, doing all that they want to do, it can be appealing to us. Well, why can't I do those things as well? And we need to remember as Christians, whether young Christian or older Christian, we need to remember, look, there, were, there was commitments made. I gave consent. 
I, I wanted to put my faith and trust in Christ. I wanted to make it public. I wanted to take my vows. I wanted to, I wanted to be recognized as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to be a member of a church. I want to, I want to grow in grace. I want to study the Word of God. I want to pray. I want to disciple others. I want to tell others about Christ. I, I, I say all of this thing, all of these things sincerely, and I make promises to God to be His faithful servant. Worldliness is a breaking of that relationship. And that's why James calls it adultery. He breaks it. Well, let's go a step further. James also describes it as friendliness with the world. Friendliness. Notice he says, you adulterers, do you not know that friendship, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. He describes this worldliness as friendship. And again, James has given us a metaphor. He's given us this, in the physical realm, we ought to understand how friendships work so that we can look spiritually at ourselves and decide whether or not we're guilty of this thing called worldliness. What it is it to be... Have, what is it to be a friend of the world? What is it to have this friendship with the world? It's simply to have an agreement and an affection towards. Think about your friends, the people that you like. There's affection. I mean, listen, there are, there are three things that I'm going to give you in order to help you understand this friendship. And, and they're going to be graded, but I think they're going to help us see how these relationships work. Number one, there's preference. When you have a friendship, there's preference, right? We prefer them. We have, you know, you see my girlfriend or my boyfriend in the sense that these are people that we really like and we enjoy their company. We give, there's preferences. There's favor there in the sense. That's not sinful preference. It's, it's, there is an enjoyment in their company. It's preferring them over someone else that you have no association with. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with friends. But when you have a friend, I mean, and I'm not talking about somebody that you, that's an acquaintance. I'm not talking about somebody you may interact with due to work or school or whatever in these general situations, I'm talking about a friend. Those people that you prefer to give what? Your time and efforts to. I want to spend time with them. Believe it or not, to spend time with somebody is to spend your resource. You've only been given so much time. Just like you've only, you know, you're only going to make so much money in this world, in this life. You're only going to make so much. And how you use that money is vital to who you are. You've only been given so much time. You only have so much of it. Guess what? Not one of us can go back and redeem anything this past week. It's gone. See, Monday's come and gone. Tuesday's come and gone. Wednesday's come and gone, right? Hey, yesterday, just yesterday is what? Come and gone. You only have so many days allotted to you in this life. And when you decide to spend your time with someone, you are spending your resources. That's a preference. Nothing wrong with the preference. Secondly, the word bias. The word bias. As Webster defines bias, he says it's a leaning of the mind. It's an inclination to. It's a propensity towards. It's, it's not an indifference towards. It's, 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 to be, it's to lean toward. Now, there is a okay bias and there's a sinful bias. But these are the sort of the biases that we have in particular. That is, my children have a certain amount of my attention that others don't have. Right? My family has a certain right, privilege to me that others don't have. That's a bias. That's a good bias. 
I am biased toward them in that regard. I am biased toward them in that effort, in that time, in these resources. That's okay. And now they get stronger. Notice the word prejudice. Now we're getting into strong affections and feelings, right? To be prejudiced is not to be concerned about the truth in the sense is to be focused solely upon the outcome. It's a strong predetermined bias focused on an outcome. I don't care what the truth is. Here's, here's what I say it is. That's where prejudice, see that's where these affections and feelings start getting, getting, confused, getting confusing. Now, James talks about this friendship with the world and notice there's a preference and there's a bias. And how does that work? How does this worldliness look in the light of a Christian? Well, what's a Christian? What are those things that we know a Christian ought to do, ought to be a part of? What are some of those activities that we ought to be identified with? Worship. Let's think about it this way. Worship. What's so important about worship? It's where we come to acknowledge that we have been brought into submission to God through His Son and we're here to give Him a great honor and glory by worshiping, exalting His name, identifying ourselves as His children, as His people. We ought to be identified by worship. We ought to be identified by the study of Scripture. Reading Scripture, well, to be identified with the truth. Why is the Word of God, the revealed Word of God, so important in the life of the believer? Well, simply put, brothers and sisters, that we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to know what truth is apart from God and what He's shown us. So we're to be identified with God by being identified with the truth that He has put in writing for all of His people. And for the whole world for that matter. We're to be identified with the fruits of the Spirit. If the, if the Spirit lives in us, there should be what? The fruits of the Spirit. See, it's so easy to say, I'm a Christian. Well, it's another thing to think, wow, am I loving? I mean, biblically. Do I love the things that God loves? What's the degree of level I need to strengthen those things? Love, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. And there are more. To be identified with... See, these are the things we ought to be identified by. See, we are identified. This friendship, this association is identified to the things we prefer. Do you prefer the activities over the world, over the activities of the church, over the activities of Christ, over the activities of Christianity? Do you prefer them? It's worldliness if you do. Is there a bias toward the way the world does things? Well, I like the way the world the I, I like the way the world handles problems. I don't see the Bible being able to handle the, the, the inner man. I don't see I, psychology trumps the Bible when it comes to knowing the heart and the mind. You prefer to believe in evolution over creation. You prefer to believe that you know these political processes are going to, to, to gain for you what only God can give. Right? See, the things that even the Bible forbids, you can be for out here. I, you know, there are so many uh, you know, people that will stand up today and unfortunately to an applause and they'll say, well, you know, um, they will declare that they are gay and Christian and, and receive an applause. Or it could be any number of things that are absolutely, clearly contrary to the teaching of God's Word. It's accepted. This is what James is talking about. These are those preferences. These are those personal biases that are exhibited by the things we prefer, by the things we associate with, by the things we okay. Because to okay and to prefer this is to be against another. And that's what we're going to talk about, right? That's what worldliness does. A couple of verses that might help us understand this here is, you know, 
in Luke chapter 23, Herod and Pilate were enemies of one another. Verse 12 says that Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. And of course, Luke is, is describing the trial of Jesus when Pilate and Herod started, you know, they were political opposers to one another. They were sort of like politicians. They were about their party and place and they were, didn't want to give any of their power up. And so they were constantly sort of opposing one another. And, and Luke brings this out. But what brought these two political opposers together? A common enemy. Who was the common enemy? Jesus. They both, they come together in order to deal with Jesus. Has anything changed about politicians? Politicians today typically are described as power hungry. They don't really concerned about keeping uh, and doing their job versus just keeping their job and maintaining power for themselves in the party they are in. Proverbs 26, 26 says, though the, now listen to this, though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Here's what it means. It says, listen, a person can cover over their hatred with lies. Oh, 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 I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not against this. I'm for all of these things. And they cover that over. But guess what happens when they get this assembly? It lacks sort of the object. What is this assembly? This assembly are the people that agree with him. What happens in the assembly? What happens when that person who is hiding their real hatred gets around other people who believe what they believe? It all comes out. See, when they get around like-minded people, their guard comes down. They, can, they, don't know, they no longer need to be on the guard and deceive others. Why? They can be as hateful as they want to be. Right there in Scripture. Romans 8, Paul writes that for the mind that is set on the flesh, that is is the mind that is set on sin, the mind that is set upon doing those things that God forbids is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Paul says. So we see here that James shows us that Friendship with the world is to be shunned by Christians. We ought to be careful about the things we prefer, the things we are biased to, the things that we see as having precedent or authority over Scripture itself. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you something. Your identity is not going to be in some social group, political party, or some movement outside in the world. That is not your identity. I'm not saying you can't advocate for things. We ought to, I think we should march for the unborn. Yeah, I think we should. I think we should advocate against murdering the unborn. That's a good thing. But that's not all that we're about. That's not our sole identity, is it? Our identity rests in our relationship with God made in His image. We are lovers of God. Therefore, we stand against these things. We prefer life over death. We prefer justice over murder. It brings us to our third point that worldliness is not neutral, but worldliness, as James says, it is opposition to God. Look again with me at verse 4. Put your eyes on it. Notice you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship, we just talked about those two things, with the world is, notice the verb, is hostility toward God. It is this. There's no way around it. It's like saying this pulpit is made of wood. It's a truth. It's the reality of the situation. This is what it is. It doesn't matter what one thinks about it. It doesn't matter that the Christian believes it or not. It's not true because a 
one person believes it, it's not true because a group of people believe it. It's not true because the majority believe it. It's true because God says it's true. Worldliness is opposition to God. What does it mean to be in opposition to? It means to be opposed. It means to be against, not for. If you are for these things that God hates, you are against God. He said, no, 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 I, I, I'm not against God. I'm just, I'm just for these things. I'm not against God. And see, beloved, though, the reason this rationale is so important is because this is why a lot of people can say, I'm this or I'm that, the things that God says not to be, and they say, but I'm a Christian. This is because they don't understand these kinds of passages that condemn them. And condemns us. When we think it's okay for that person, you know what we say? They have a right to say that. You got to be careful. I'm very concerned about how the word right is tossed about. Everything is not a right. Everything is not a right. Where do you go to get your rights from? You go to your Creator. You go to your Creator. You go to the Word of God where this Creator has revealed Himself. And this, brothers and sisters, is where you find your rights. Be careful because there are so many, there there are so many preferences and biases out there that are called what? Are being called what? Rights. And they are not. And we as Christians should not fall into that trap. It expresses, as one commentator says, it expresses a malice. If I am for something that my my spouse is against, I am showing malice against my spouse. To be for something that God is against is to demonstrate malice in His sight. It's to be at odds with Him. It's to be different than Him. In Genesis 3.15, in, God, in order to protect Eve, in order to protect the seed that would come, the promised seed that would come as the Redeemer of the world, the Lord said, I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman. God says, I'm going to do this for your, for your good. I'm going to put this opposition, this enmity between you and Satan. So you don't want it. Notice that, that enmity there is a good thing. There are certain things, brothers and sisters, that we should hate. We should hate relativism. We should hate pluralism. We should hate egalitarianism. We should hate this, this, this pressure and this force of the world to bring all things under one plane. Under uh, All things are equal. No distinction whatsoever. No rights. None of this. All this is just the same. It's just blah, blah, blah. Some form of evolution. It doesn't really have meaning. We should hate all of that. Why? Because we have a Creator who created us uniquely and perfectly in His own image. Guess what? A woman a man in his image, both beautiful in God's sight, both with distinct roles and purposes and uses, but precious in his sight. What happens when we begin to distort those roles and places and positions and rights and privileges? We distort what God has so perfectly created for his glory. To be for what God opposes, brothers and sisters, is to be His enemy. It's the place of opposition. Well, let's make some application to some of these things.
So we see there are three things found in the verse itself, right? We see that it's separation. It's a divorcement of the reality of the way things are to be the things we want them to be. We, we may think all of these things, if I just can have my way in the marriage, or if I can just have my way in the church, or if I can just politic for this out into society, if I could just have my way and have my perspective honored, I would be happy, I would be good, I would be successful. It's not true. It's not true. It doesn't translate into any of that. Why? Because that's not the way God made this world to revolve around your desires. The world revolves around God and His desires and what He created the world for and to be. Another aspect here, brothers and sisters, is this. Notice you see the rest of this verse. It says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself. Now that makes himself an enemy of God. You want to underline makes himself because that's important to the verse. You want to underline, you want to score, you want to highlight that present participle. They make themselves the enemy of God. How do they make themselves the enemy of God? By advocating, leaning towards, preferring, and giving bias to all the things that God says you ought not to do. See, sometimes when we find ourselves in a situation, a relationship, whether it be a marital or situation, guess what? You may be right. The woman or the man may be right, but guess what you need to exercise? Instead of power, patience. Understanding. And not try to force it to be exactly how you want it. Because guess what God is doing? God is working in both in the situation. Instead of one spouse acting as God in the situation and circumstance, let God be God and the husband and wife be subjected to God. Same way in the church, right? Sometimes what do we need to exercise with one another? Not power. What happens when we go to exercise our power, our influence, our rhetoric, our, our, our personality over someone who may actually be weaker in understanding or those things? When we go to dominate over somebody so that we might have our way, I ask you this, how does that honor God? When we need to exercise patience, understanding, maybe some long-suffering, Understanding that God is at work and God cares and God is bringing all of this about in, in His time to do exactly as He sees fit, right? But what happens when we want it our way and we want it now and we want it, on our, we want it our way and we want it on our time frame? What happens? Nothing good. Nothing good. We demand people agree with us and we demand people agree with us exactly how we see it. Isn't that what's going on politically? Not only must we, you know, are being forced to assume certain positions and say things we don't want to say, but we must also say, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm a worm, you're God, you must lead me to this glorious utopia, I don't know how to do it. You must absolutely deface yourself, grovel in the dust in order to acknowledge that, well, these political movements are demanding, are, are nothing about, they're, what they're for is power. Forcing people to agree with them when they don't. It's power. It's, it's, the, use of, it's the use of power in a wrong way. So let's talk about some application here. We've got just a few minutes. First of all, worldliness. If, if we are guilty of worldliness and we've, we've defined it, in those three things. We need to see ourselves in a backslidden position. Worldliness is a backslidden position. And we must repent of worldliness. If we are guilty of worldliness, we need to see it is not a favorable position to be in. It is a backslidden condition. We are regressing in God's graces we are not advancing in God's grace. 
Number two, where do you go to get the answers to your problems? Now, I, I do sarcastically often say, do you go to Dr. Phil? And I know y'all don't watch Dr. Phil, probably. Or if you watch him, you're certainly not watching him to get advice. But where do you go to get your advice? Where do you go to get answers? Where do you go to, to, to find th- these political solutions? Where do you go to really answer the questions of what is real human rights? Where do they come from? What rights will you advocate for? The ones that God says our rights are others. What will you do when you find out that those rights don't comport with Scripture? Will you reject them? Will you deny them? Will you agree with God or will you be biased? Number three. That God made this world and He governs this world. And all who live in it, live in it in accord to that reality. All, that, all who live in it. I don't care if they're atheists. I don't care if they deny God. I don't care if they say, I just don't know if there is a God. I don't care if it's abject paganism. I don't care if it's people that worship trees, flowers, bushes, uh, the sun, the moon, the stars. I don't care. It doesn't matter. God is the God of truth. and uh, he, he resides over this world. And He has defined how things are. And there's no neutral ground Anytime we seek to put our own definition on things, we are creating for ourselves what? A utopia. And what is a utopia? It's no place. It's no place. Fourthly, to be for one thing is to oppose another. That's part of the neutral philosophy. There's no neutral ground philosophy. To be for one thing is to oppose another. If I'm for the sanctity of life, I have to be against abortion. If I'm for life and the sanctity of it, I have to be against all of those things that oppose, take, abuse life. I have to be against, I have to be against spousal abuse. If I'm for life, I have to be against everything that opposes life. And I have to stand against it. And I have to fight against it. I have to speak against it. Now, that doesn't mean speaking against it without knowing you may need to educate yourself. But nevertheless, to be for one thing is to oppose another. You can't be for both. Now listen, that doesn't mean that people don't try. You know, they're inconsistent and hypocritical and everything else. But listen to me. Even the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, you can't serve God and money because you will learn to serve one and hate the other. You can't serve both. You can't have two masters. And what you serve and what you live for will be what you worship. Okay? And lastly... Everything has consequences. What is, what's the consequence of being worldly? Hatred toward God. Opposition to Him. The things we think, our, our biases, our prejudices, our preferences, all have consequences. The things we think, the things we want, the things we desire, all will lead to certain kinds of consequences. Now, that doesn't mean they're all equal and they're all equal and destructive, but they are all still bad and sinful when they are opposed to the things of God. Okay? All right, I'm going to close with this. Let's be old-fashioned. I'll take out a map. And we don't use maps today. We use our phones, right? Our GPSs. We put in the address and it tells us to turn right. And we are like robots. We turn right. We say turn left. And we even do it. We say, I don't think I should be going this way. I think, you know, we still follow the GPS and come out in the wrong place. It's happened to me. But let's just say we roll out a map here. And there's a couple things we need to do. Number one, we need to find our place on the map. Where are we? And we need to find out where we're going. 
And we say we take a compass and we have to take the compass and we have to do what? With the map. We orientate the compass to the map. That is, we want to know where north is. We want to know where north is so that we can orient the compass and the map. They line up together. They're synced together so that when we plan our trip in order to get from where we are to where we want to go, we can actually get there without getting lost. That's like making decisions. These decisions and preferences and biases, these commitments, these loves, this... Listen, if we're going to break our word, if we're going to break our vows, if we're not going to keep our promises, if we're not going to keep any of these things seriously, what do you think the consequences are going to be? What do you think the consequences of that? Well, he says, right? God's going to oppose you. Well, that's the opposite of blessing, isn't it? If you're going to break your promise to God, how can you ask for God's blessing upon you? If you're not going to keep your promise to God, how's God going to keep His promise to you? What's God's promise to you? I will cleanse you of your sins. I will forgive you. I will grant to you this eternal life. I will bless you along the way. I will grow you up. I will make you a beautiful man, a beautiful woman. I will bless your marriage. I will bless your parenting. I'll bless your childbearing. I will do all these things. I am your God and I'm jealous for you. I don't want you out serving these idols and the gods of this world. You belong to me. I love you. And I want you to love me. What happens when we break that word? We break that promise. How can we claim these promises faithfully if we won't keep our word? Remember what, you know, you go back and you read Jeremiah and he says to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, tell these people they love me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They don't mean it. They come in and they sing these hymns and they sing these praises. They bow their reluctantly, they all over the place desires. I mean, there's prayer going on and there's people doing all kinds of things and there's brains and minds and hearts are all, they're not here with me. You're, so, you're doing what you want to do in your head. You're doing what you want to do. Oh, you're here physically, but you're not here mentally. You're not here spiritually. And I see it. Oh, brothers and sisters, Consequences. We cannot tread, we cannot head down this path of worldliness and be pleasing in God's sight. Now next week, guess what we're going to deal with? How to address world, how to repent of it. Next week we're going to deal with repentance when we find ourselves guilty of worldliness. And I don't mean you wait to repent next week. If you've been convicted of it, you start today. You start repenting. And next week we'll learn more about it. Let's pray.